Hello, and welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm joined by my delightful co-host, Kelly Gurner. Hey there, Kindred Spirits. Kelly, how are you doing? Well, I'm counting down the days until the Oscars. <laughs> um, it's March 10th, everyone. Mark your calendars. But you know what, Reagan? I'm still so mad about Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig getting snubbed for their work on Barbie. I don't understand how, if Barbie is nominated for Best Picture, yes. why the two largest pieces of that movie were not nominated as well. You couldn't have that movie without Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig. Right? You absolutely could not. They championed the movie. It is their artistic vision. It just doesn't make any sense. It smacks of the Academy voters not understanding what the movie was about, quite frankly. And I'm sure we're not seeing anything that hasn't been said a hundred times by now. It's just so frustrating because this movie was celebrated and enjoyed not just by audiences, but by critics. This movie was a critical darling. I thought so. Yes. And I mean, it's nominated up the wazoo. Eight other nominations, including for screenplay, including for production design and nothing for Greta Gerwig the director or for Margot Robbie Barbie it's so good and it's so thoughtful and as like candy pink and pretty and kind of fun and silly as it is it really is making so many amazing points about you know what it is to be a woman in our culture and not just America Ferrera's amazing monologue but also like what is it like to live in a culture where everyone else's fantasies are projected on you all the time what does that mean? What does it feel like if that's not true? What does that feel like if you make your own world? Like it's really playing with these interesting ideas and these alternate realities. It's doing something interesting and it's like boom right over all the Academy voters' heads. So frustrating. But we are definitely rooting for America Ferreira to win Best Supporting Actress. For sure. Let's move into our episode. Today's episode is all about Miss Cornelia Bryant who is our kindred spirit of the episode. Woohoo! She is the acerbic, observant, and altruistic spinster of Four Winds Harbor, and that's who we will be talking about at length tonight. Can't wait. For our quote of the episode, let's talk about this moment. When Anne and Gilbert first come to the House of Dreams, Captain Jim and Dr. Dave tell them all about their neighbor, Cornelia Bryant. Captain Jim says she has, quote, a holy horror of Methodists. Dr. Dave says she's quite a character, a most inveterate man-hater. But Jim rushes to his friend's defense in our quote of the episode. Cornelia could have had her pick of men when she was young. Even yet, she's only to say the word to see the old widowers jump. She just seems to have borne with a sort of chronic spite against men and Methodists. She's got the bitterest tongue and the kindest heart in four winds. Wherever there's any trouble, that woman is there, doing everything to help in the tenderest way. She never says a harsh word about another woman. And if she likes to card us poor scalawags of men down, I reckon our tough old hides can stand it. <laughs> oh, good old Captain Jim. Our story club discussion today is going to center the theme of goodness and Miss Cornelia Bryant. This character study is the first in our series for Anne's House of Dreams, and in these character studies, we are going to explore how the main characters of House of Dreams both embody Anne's core themes and subvert those same ideas. And we kind of see this as a metaphor for the ways that our values are tested and evolve in adulthood. 
In Anne of Green Gables, Anne tells Matthew that one of the qualities she most aspires for, but of course is sure she can never achieve, is angelic goodness. Throughout Anne's young adult years, we've seen her live up to her own ideals of goodness. When she becomes a patient and caring teacher, an active and concerned member of the community, and a kind and loving friend. But in Anne's House of Dreams, now Anne is a full-fledged adult, or a grown-ass lady, as we would say here on the pod. And, <laughs> and things aren't always as simple as good or bad, virtuous or sinful. Miss Cornelia, as an embodiment of goodness, is a great example of this theory. She's somehow hateful and loving and bigoted and deeply selfless all at the same time. She detests Methodists and men, and much of what she says is judgmental or reproachful. But her actions reveal a much more nuanced outlook on the world. She cares deeply for her community and will do anything to help families in need, even when the rest of the town has forgotten them. She is a loving and loyal friend, and as a neighbor, she is a core thread in the social safety net of Four Winds Harbor. She's not angelically good in any sense that young Anne would have recognized, but there is no doubt that at her core, Cornelia is a deeply moral and good person. We are going to pick up where Miss Cornelia comes into the book, meaning we're skipping over the early chapters featuring Anne and Gilbert's wedding. Don't worry, we are going to come back and revisit that in later episodes. But for now, we're going to focus on the world according to Cornelia Bryant. Our first brush with Miss Cornelia, though we don't know it yet, is when Anne and Gilbert are driving to Four Winds Harbor after their wedding. As they crest the hill behind the village of Glen St. Mary, Anne notices a brilliant greenhouse and asks, Who lives in that house, Gilbert? I don't know. It doesn't look exactly as if the occupants could be kindred spirits, Anne, does it? The house was a large, substantial affair, painted such a vivid green that the landscape seemed quite faded by contrast. There was an orchard behind it and a nicely kept lawn before it, but somehow there was a certain bareness about it. Perhaps its neatness was responsible for this. The whole establishment, house, barns, orchard, garden, lawn, and lane, was so starkly neat. It doesn't seem probable that anyone with that taste in paint could be very kindred, acknowledged Anne. <laughs> I see that outlandish colors and paint are once again coming to haunt Gilbert and Anne. <laughs> the Blythes will later learn that evening when they meet Dr. Dave, Mrs. Dr. Dave and Captain Jim for dinner, that the home is owned by Miss Cornelia Bryant. That's when we learn of this remarkable woman who, as Captain Jim puts it, seems to have been born with a chronic spite for men and Methodists, but who would do anything to help the people of Four Winds Harbor. Captain Jim also introduces us to one of Miss Cornelia's sayings, that people who you especially connect with are members of, quote, the race that knows Joseph. He acknowledges that Cornelia groups him in as a member of the race that knows Joseph, and he thinks that Anne and Gilbert are likely to be members too. Anne, of course, recognizes this designation as another way of calling people kindred spirits. Uh, Reagan, who is Joseph? So Joseph, in the Bible, is the son of Jacob and Rachel, and he is the founder of the Israelite tribe of Joseph. He's also of the Technicolor Dreamcoat. <gasps> Joseph, Pharaoh's number two. Joseph, Egypt looks to you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Nice. So Joseph was sold as a slave to the Egyptians by his jealous brothers. And after Joseph correctly interprets the Pharaoh's dreams, he rises to second in command in Egypt. And because of the way that he interpreted the Pharaoh's dreams, he helped save Egypt during the famine. And so therefore, the Jewish people found safe haven in Egypt, thanks to Joseph. Good job, Joseph. 
However, later pharaohs have forgotten Joseph and what he had done, and so eventually turn against the Jewish people in Egypt. They have forgotten the race that knows Joseph. Ah. Eventually leading to the Exodus. So I think when Miss Cornelia is saying the race that knows Joseph, she means a member of the same tribe, a member who believes as you believe, both religiously and morally, a person who knows what's really true. Okay, thank you so much for that explanation, not just because it gave me a chance to sing Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but also because I think that I thought that this referenced Joseph like Mary's husband, <laughs> like right. Jesus's stepdad. Right, right, right. <laughs> also, an important Joseph. Miss Cornelia introduces herself a few weeks after the Blythes arrive, having tactfully given them time to settle in and put their home in order before receiving visitors. Okay, this scene is really kind of funny to me. So Gilbert and Anne are sitting on their doorstep and it's so cute. And they're like, her head is on his shoulder. They're being all like lovey-dovey. When all of a sudden Gilbert sees, quote, a full rigged ship sailing up our lane. And Reagan, I am not precisely sure what this means, but I definitely picture like a classic ship from the age of sail, like a big wooden ship with enormous masts billowing in the wind. And I don't know if Gilbert is referencing Miss Cornelia's size or her just sort of determined manner of walking, but either way, the sense is that an imposing force is making its way to the House of Dreams. Gilbert excuses himself to the study, leaving Anne to receive the caller. Miss Cornelia bustles right in with an armful of sewing and immediately sets to work, skipping the formalities of a brief social call. And so I ask you, Reagan, what would you think <laughs> if you had lived somewhere for a few weeks and all of a sudden your neighbor comes by to introduce themselves and they bring like a crafting project with them? <laughs> That's essentially what she's done. And it's like so wild to think about it. What if you don't get along? <laughs> And now here is this person in your house who's like set up their glue and stamps and paint and they then, you know, evidently intend to stay and finish their work. Oh, yeah, that is a wild thing to me as well. <laughs> and I am not someone who loves a drop by either. No, I guess there wasn't really another option back yet. It's not like you could call first. And I don't mind a spontaneous visit. I'm often up for them. But for Pete's sake, Text me first and give me like two minutes. Don't just like arrive at my doorstep and expect to come in. Well, okay. I think this is why they always had to keep their houses so tidy. Yes. So it's like if someone texts me and says I'm coming over in 15 minutes, great. That gives me 15 minutes to run around, pick up the piles of clothes, like make things like vaguely presentable, load the dishwasher, and then, yep. yes, of course, come on in. So happy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Maybe that, that's exactly it, right? Like just I need a few minutes to sweep up all the dirty shoes and like yep. toss them in the box. <laughs> But in any case, Anne does not seem to have any such reservations, and I'm sure her house is in perfect order. And she is charmed by Miss Cornelia. Maud tells us, There was something in her expression which won Anne instantly. With her old instinctive quickness to discern kindred spirits, she knew she was going to like Miss Cornelia, in spite of uncertain oddities of opinion and certain oddities of attire. Anne's new neighbor is described as having, quote, a fresh round pink and white face and jolly brown eyes and is wearing a striped blue and white apron and a wrapper of chocolate print with a design of huge pink roses scattered over it. And nobody but Miss Cornelia could have looked dignified and suitably garbed in it. In case you were wondering, like I was, 
A wrapper is sort of a loose house dress worn over your other clothes to protect them and generally only worn at home. So they were kind of big voluminous dresses and you could cinch them at the waist with ties, both kind of inside or outside or left loose. And they were very simply made. They were intended for just staying at home. It would be really unusual to make a call to a neighbor in your wrapper. It would almost like be going out in your robe. Well, and I think also because at this time, wrappers weren't made to be worn with a corset. Right. So so you would either be wearing a very light sort of corset that you would wear at home, something that was like made of cotton instead of boning, you know, something you could like sit down and do your work in with comfortably or scandalous. You might be going out without a corset at all. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Right. Right. Absolutely. That's why they were kind of big and voluminous and could easily be adjusted size wise because they just had ties. So you could kind of tie them however you wanted. It would not be very common for folks to be making even casual house calls in their wrappers. Much less the first time you meet someone. Oh, she's so funny. Reagan, how old do we think Miss Cornelia is? From the jump, she's described as an old maid and a spinster, so we know she's not super young, but we also know from Valency in the Blue Castle that you can be called a spinster and a hopeless old maid at the ripe old age of 29. <laughs> You know, Cornelia calls Anne Deary, which kind of makes me think she's older than Anne. She wears glasses to do her needlework. Well, it's not totally clear if she wears them all the time or just to sew, but that kind of, for me, pegs her a little closer to middle age. But that's kind of it for me. Like, other than that, I don't get the sense that she's very old at all. Like, Maude literally describes her as fresh-faced, and she seems to have all the energy in the world, right? She's running a house and a farm by herself, apparently sewing clothes for all the babies in the village. And then later on in the book, there's kind of this, like, telling line when she's talking about Captain Jim, whom she says has been old for as long as she can remember. And we also know that Jim is 76. So I kind of think that places Cornelia like 40 or 50 years younger than he is. Mm -hmm. Maybe she's in her mid 30s. Could she be as young as that? I'm kind of picturing her at about mid 40s. Mm. Old enough that she looks at Anne and Leslie as young, but clearly she's in the prime of her life. She's very active. She knows herself. She knows what's important to her. Yeah, I do think she's younger. Yeah, I would say 40s for sure. And, you know, it's a little at odds with how I felt about her when I read this book as a kid. I thought she was like well into her 60s, right? right. Like, I would have pictured her as late middle age when I read this as a young kid. Right. Um, like Marilla, yes. maybe not quite a contemporary of Marilla, but almost. Yes. Right. Closer to Marilla, Mrs. Lind than to Anne in to Anne. age. <laughs> now I just realized that she's a contemporary to us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, I picture her as a grown-ass lady for sure, but not old. But in any case, Miss Cornelia bustles in, sits down, and unpacks. She tells Anne, I brought my work, Mrs. Blythe Theory, she remarked, unrolling some dainty material. I'm in a hurry to get this done, and there isn't any time to lose. Just everything about Miss Cornelia seems to signify industry and energy and movement. She's coming up the lane like a ship at full mast. She wears loud kind of mismatched garments. No interest in small talk. She just sits right down and gets to work. And as we mentioned in our recap episode, Miss Cornelia is sewing baby clothes for Mrs. Fred Proctor's eighth baby, who is due any day. Cornelia acknowledges that it's a bit foolish. The Proctors clearly have plenty of baby clothes. And according to Miss Cornelia, quote, nobody's wanting the poor mite. But she feels that even an unwanted eighth child deserves something that belongs just to them. And so she's making these extra pretty clothes with lots of little tucks and frills. Beauty-loving Anne notices this and admires Miss Cornelia's sewing. And she has no problem stating that she is the best sewer around. 
correct. So here we are already. We're not more than a few minutes into meeting Miss Cornelia and we are knee deep in this goodness, you know, our theme of goodness in, in this dichotomy around this and Miss Cornelia. Because on the one hand, she seems so unconventional, right? I mean, maybe even rude or ill-mannered. I'm sure some people would say that about her. She's barging into Anne's house for the super long visit. She hasn't been invited. She's dressed crazy. <laughs> and she's bragging about her sewing ability. But then on the other hand, we see that she's doing this tremendous act of charity and that there's this strong streak of empathy in her, right? She's thinking about the dignity and pride of like a little infant. Miss Cornelia then pivots from eighth babies to harvest time to local funerals, <laughs> all with head spinning speed before finally landing on one of the topics Captain Jim had warned Anne about before, Cornelia's suspicion of Methodists. Cornelia doesn't explain why she disdains Methodists and only trusts Presbyterians, we will do our best to hazard some guesses and unpack this rivalry in our Birch Path segment. And Anne teases Cornelia a bit, mentioning that the Methodist minister gives lovely sermons and is good looking. And while Cornelia agrees, she's unswayed and tells Anne she refuses to have anything to do with the Methodists and that Anne and Gilbert shouldn't either. It seems like such a bizarre prejudice that it's not consistent with how the majority of the village behaves. No, no. Based on what other characters say, it seems like members of both churches get along just fine in town. So it's this peculiarity of Cornelia's that is played for laughs in the book, even though the root of it just seems like plain bigotry to me. Mm -hmm. And then Miss Cornelia neatly pivots from Methodist to the other group she generally distrusts, men. <laughs> she tells Anne, quote, this Methodist minister isn't married. The last one they had was, and his wife was the silliest, flightiest little thing I ever saw. I told her husband once he should have waited till she was grown up before he married her. He said he wanted to have the training of her. Wasn't that like a man? And that's the first instance of Miss Cornelia's most memorable mantra. So if you're playing House of Dreams bingo, be sure to check that square off your card. Check. I do think it's worth noticing and pointing out that unlike her hatred of Methodists, which seems unprovoked, or maybe there's some more theological context we're missing as modern readers, her disgust with men seems kind of well-supported, mm -hmm. at least with the men she mentions. I mean, this example of a man says that he wants to train his wife is, you know, not great. A <laughs> minister, a community leader, I mean, what kind of example is that? Yeah, Cornelia mentions a few other terrible husbands. She mentions a Mr. Bradshaw who always bought new farm machinery every time he went out to buy a gift for his wife. I feel like that's kind of coming home, you know, with an anniversary present that's like a vacuum. <laughs> and a Mr. Milgrave who believed he was dead and would tell his wife to bury him. That and just seems weird. Yeah, that seems like that's just weird. Mm. Well, so then Anne asks Cornelia if she knows any good men. And Miss Cornelio tells Anne that she knows a few over yonder, pointing to the churchyard. So, <laughs> she's such a hoot. Miss Cornelia and Anne then bond over like a shared, I guess, dismay at their Presbyterian minister who has a face like a gravestone, according to Miss Cornelia. And she shares that while she can admit he's not much of a minister to Anne in front of the Methodists, she would praise him to high heaven and even defend his wife, who has a reputation for dressing too colorfully for a minister's wife. Quote, but I say, when she has to live with a face like that, she needs something to cheer her up. You'll never hear me condemning a woman for her dress. Miss Cornelia then explains she never fusses too much with her attire because, quote, women just dress to please the men, and I'd never stoop to that. Miss Cornelia tells Anne that she has a nice, comfortable, peaceful life because she has never cared about what the men thought. 
<laughs> I love her. I love her so much in this book. <laughs> I remember reading this character as a kid and I got the comic relief of it and I didn't take her very seriously. And I still think that Maud means for Miss Cornelia to be a funny character, but there is a thread of truth here, right? Yeah. You know, dressing or behaving for other people instead of acting or dressing or whatever by your own conviction, your own taste, that's a recipe for misery. And Miss Cornelia seems to understand that down to her soul. Now, I might suggest that not every woman then or now who cares about her clothes is dressing just to please men. I mean, we know for a fact that Anne loves beautiful clothes, and that seems to have nothing at all to do with wanting to please men. But the larger point that she's making, right, is that you can exist outside the judgment or expectations or pleasure of other people. That's a good point, and probably not one that people were saying too loudly at the time this book was set or even at the time that it was published. We discussed that same idea in our Blue Castle recap, too. Mm. Kind of the stealth progressivism and feminism in Maud's books. Like, these are women's fictions titles, perhaps taken less seriously, marketed only to women, young women often, with these fairly subversive ideas in them. Hear about carving your own path, living a life on your own terms, not those dictated by family or tradition or a husband or a religion or society. And I'd even say some of Miss Cornelia's rants about men, some of them are very unreasonable and clearly for laughs, but right. some of them, as we'll discuss, often have good points. And that's a pretty subversive thing to have in some of these books, too. There is a seed of truth in a lot of what she says. And, you know, it, she is a very funny character, but it's sort of like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Mm hmm. Well, Anne asks Miss Cornelia why she hates men, and Miss Cornelia explains that she doesn't hate them. They just aren't worth that much of her energy. Queen behavior. Queen behavior, right? <laughs> and Cornelia also says that she doesn't hate all men. She just hasn't seen that many whom she considers to be good men. She likes Captain Jim and Dr. Dave, and she suspects she'll like Gilbert based on what she's heard so far. And, of course, Miss Cornelia, the Four Winds insider, she's heard everything. Anne gets up to get tea, inviting Miss Cornelia to extend her visit and stay. And Cornelia agrees as long as Anne invites Gilbert to join them. Miss Cornelia is sure he's been eavesdropping from the study and laughing. And she's exactly right. <laughs> and just like that, Miss Cornelia is a firm friend of the House of Dreams. Yeah, I love that moment of prescience on her part. Well, the next that we see of Miss Cornelia, she's telling Anne the story of Leslie Moore's life. As our Four Winds insider, who knows everything about everyone, Miss Cornelia has all of the details. She's filled with compassion for Leslie, and she tells a story straightforwardly, not beating around the bush about the tragedies that Leslie has endured. Miss Cornelia has more empathy for Leslie than she seems to have in most of the other stories she tells, including of her cousin Flora, who has 11 children and whose husband, quote, suicided three years ago, just like a man. Oh, boy. When Anne asks why, Miss Cornelia downplays what must have been a very serious depression with, uh, he couldn't get his way over something, so he jumped into the well. A good riddance. He was a born tyrant. But of course, it spoiled the well. Oh, no, the well. Miss Cornelia has no patience for men who make their wives' lives harder in any way. She calls it like she sees it. and She doesn't spare Leslie's mother from her sharp opinion either. But for all of Miss Cornelia's sharpness, she's keenly observant about those around her, the women in town, particularly those who are overworked, and Leslie especially. Miss Cornelia's pronouncements about the uselessness of men might be uncharitable, 
but she sees clearly the way that women often bear the burden of keeping their families functioning, and she tries in her own way to make their lives better. Right. It seems like a lot of the time that when Miss Cornelia is criticizing men, she's not pointing out that they are like all fundamentally wicked or anything. It's just that they don't appreciate or they don't understand how their choices and actions affect their wives, children, and communities. I think Miss Cornelia has decided that she has to be there to pick up the pieces some of the times. Right. With Leslie, Miss Cornelia sees all the emotions that Leslie refuses to talk about and has clearly spent years being there for her when Leslie consistently tries to push her away. And then Miss Cornelia is also the primary way that Anne gets to understand Leslie at first, because she's explaining to Anne all of Leslie's baffling behaviors and her touchy reactions. Honestly, thank goodness for Miss Cornelia. Right. I don't know whether Anne would have been able to push past Leslie's kind of rude and cold behavior when she first meets her if Miss Cornelia wasn't there to provide the backstory and also to provide this encouragement that Leslie really does want Anne's friendship and just has to persevere. Right. And Miss Cornelia, in the way she understands Leslie, is really kind of showing that natural goodness and that empathy that she is so good at, right, even in her kind of unconventional way. And then, you know, we also have this real contrast between Miss Cornelia and Captain Jim that illustrates how complex the idea of goodness becomes once you are an adult. You know, when you're a child, goodness is often equated to obedience or impulse control and just sort of thinking of the feelings of others. And that's straightforward enough most of the time. But Miss Cornelia and Captain Jim are often wrestling with goodness in less stark, less obvious terms. And, you know, I think Dick Moore is an excellent example of this. Captain Jim tells Anne about finding Dick Moore in Cuba and bringing him home. Quote, Miss Cornelia always says I shouldn't have done it, but I can't agree with her. It was the right thing to do, and so twas the only thing. There ain't no question in my mind about that, but my old heart aches for Leslie. Miss Cornelia's perspective is that Leslie was better off with Dick Moore presumed dead, and that by Captain Jim bringing him home, he made Leslie's life, a life that was difficult already, even harder. Miss Cornelia isn't wrong. There's often a real cost attached to doing the right thing. And it's a cost often paid by women, by caretakers, by the people with less power and agency, by the folks that have to live with the right thing to do. And it's not fair that yet again, it's Leslie that is paying this cost. Women, even more so at that time, but still true today, have far fewer resources to protect themselves or influence the bigger societal changes. And so they end up trapped because no one is looking out for what's right for them. But of course, Captain Jim is right too. Regardless of what kind of person Dick Moore was, leaving him to live out his days away from home and from family and any hope of getting better, that's not an ethical thing to do. If Leslie had an option for divorce or for protection in leaving an abusive marriage, perhaps there would be a way to both do the right thing and to protect Leslie. But there isn't. And though Captain Jim hates that Leslie is bearing this burden, this doesn't stop him from doing what he thinks is right. We're going to see this come up again later in the book, but this early conversation starts laying that groundwork. Yeah. You know what this makes me think of? It's kind of a dark example, but it's a good modern day parallel to the two sides of goodness that we see represented in Captain Jim and Miss Cornelia's perspectives. I'm thinking of criminal investigations and prosecutions against people suspected and accused of violence against women. We know that statistically, 
crimes like domestic violence and sexual assault are vastly underreported and underprosecuted. And we also know that that carries with it a burden that is disproportionately suffered by women, particularly women who are in communities or in relationships that have left them powerless. Yet at the same time, these crimes are extremely hard to prove to the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what the justice system in the United States requires. And we also have this like deeply held civic value that it's unethical to punish someone for a crime that we can't prove they committed. So in our House of Dreams characters, I can see Captain Jim holding firm that no one should be punished for a crime they didn't commit, while Miss Cornelia is holding space and empathy for all the women who don't see justice. Both Miss Cornelia and Captain Jim attend Christmas dinner at the House of Dreams with the Blys and the visiting folks of Green Gables. This gives us more opportunity to see how Miss Cornelia and Captain Jim interact. And they are clearly old friends and they enjoy sparring with each other around their different viewpoints. Miss Cornelia is sewing away for another baby in another poverty-stricken family, a family to whom Miss Cornelia sent a Christmas dinner as well. You really don't ever see Miss Cornelia just relaxing. She always is doing something. Miss Cornelia has thoughts about women's burdens at the holidays, saying, I suppose that's why so many women kill themselves cooking, just as poor Amelia Baxter did. She died last Christmas morning, and she said it was the first Christmas since she was married that she didn't have to cook a big 20-plate dinner. Must have been a real pleasant change for her. <laughs> This is a very funny line, but I'm actually struck by how contemporary that idea is. Yeah. And maybe I just spend too much time on like the parent internet, but that conversation on the unequal domestic labor in homes is a constant source of frustration and anger and resentment. And just over the holidays, I saw a lot of very thoughtful takes and reminders about how hard women primarily work to make the holiday special for everyone else, and often that work goes unreciprocated and unacknowledged. Miss Cornelia would have actually been a great addition to this discussion. I could see her having a very blunt and controversial TikTok account. Oh, I'd follow. <laughs> and, you know, here again, we have another example of Maude's sort of stealth progressivism. It's all dressed up as a funny line from Miss Cornelia, but the truth underlying it is no less true now than it was then. Miss Cornelia spends the rest of the evening complaining about a variety of men in town, <laughs> some of whom are doubly suspect because they are also Methodists. So things that Miss Cornelia has declared are, quote, just like a man in this chapter are eating a lot at a holiday meal, thinking that his wife's life insurance payout answered his financial prayers, imagining the devil is always at his elbow, following the women's lead in building the new church, and I imagine taking credit for it, and being glad his ill-tempered wife had died. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are all different men, right? But right. It's all just like a man. But I'm just hilarious that she's kind of just like going through the litany of terrible men. And then she also has this zinger quote, I'm not hankering after the vote, believe me. I know what it is to clean up after the men. But some of these days, when the men realize they've got the world into a mess they can't get out of, they'll be glad to give us the vote and shoulder their troubles over on us. That's their scheme. <laughs> God, I would love to hear Miss Cornelia's take on today's politics. I am sure she would be even more disgusted. So Maude is clearly using Miss Cornelia for comedy in House of Dreams, which as a book is not one of her funniest, so it certainly needs a few humorous moments. Anne and Gilbert find Miss Cornelia funny as well, reportedly laughing heartily over many of her speeches once she's left. When Anne tells Captain Jim not to bait Miss Cornelia so much, he says, 
Oh, I do love to set her going, Mistress Blythe, chuckled the unrepentant sinner. It's the greatest amusement I have in life. That tongue of hers would blister a stone, and you and that young dog of a doctor enjoy listening to her as much as I do. But despite the outlandishness of Miss Cornelia's sharp jabs at men, in general and in particular, Miss Cornelia illuminates a lot of the specific unfairness of a patriarchal society. And while Miss Cornelia is old-fashioned in many respects, especially compared to the young and modern Anne and Gilbert, she's keyed in on the way that the patriarchy leaves gaping holes in the social safety net and the ways that women have been left with patching it up. So we have this very interesting way that goodness is practiced here. We've got the distrustful, judgmental, and kind of mean-spirited gossip of Miss Cornelia. She's painted a whole half of society with the same brush, and she is determined not to see any opinion contrary to her own. That's not goodness by many standards. But on the other hand, she uses her sharp tongue to punch up, never down, and to call out the ways in which individual men are lacking in accountability. She's speaking up for so many of the women in town who can't speak up for themselves, whether that's because they've been socialized not to, because they're scared to, or because they simply have too much to lose. Miss Cornelia is in a unique position. Now, we don't know what her financial status is, but she's clearly not hurting for money, and she's able to afford her single lifestyle. That gives her a lot of freedom to point out all of these inequities. And that is also goodness. Challenging established power structures is ethical and moral. Speaking up and calling out unfairness, also good and moral. Taking care of those who need help is also good and moral. Yeah. So Miss Cornelia is quite the contradiction. But isn't that what we find as we become adults? Goodness isn't quite as simple and easy to achieve as we first thought or that we were told that it would be. Right, right. We are really pushing the boundary of what we would call goodness in House of Dreams. I mean, this is just a deeply nuanced book. One of many reasons we love it. You know, we have these ideas of simple goodness, like a child being obedient, right alongside these ideas of essential goodness, like these ethical quandaries surrounding Dick Moore. And even in between those, we have Miss Cornelia's example of goodness, which includes speaking truth to power and giving aid to those in need, even if it's done in a manner that can be unconventional or rude or paternalistic. Also, I feel like we need to keep a running tally of things that Miss Cornelia thinks are just like a man. Oh, yeah. At this point in the book, we can add burning up his wife's new suit because men at church looked too admiringly at her and having to delay his wedding because he caught the mumps. Per Miss Cornelia, he should have had the mumps when he was a boy. Well, in the world, according to Miss Cornelia, he should have. We do see Miss Cornelia's goodness in a more traditional sense, in her wholehearted support of Anne through her pregnancy, sewing so many beautiful baby garments as this tangible proof of her love, and in the tender way she dresses poor little baby Joyce's body in the beautiful dress that Leslie made, doing this terrible hard task for Anne and Gilbert through her own tears. Miss Cornelia shows her love through her actions, helping Marilla to pack up all the baby gear in the wake of the loss so that way Anne will not have to do it, and cooking up more food than they can eat to help Anne's recovery. Miss Cornelia doesn't turn away from grief and sadness. She shows up. We next see Miss Cornelia as she makes arrangements for Owen Ford to board with Leslie for the summer. And we see her yet again fencing with Captain Jim. <laughs> While Miss Cornelia may have strong opinions, she can laugh at herself easily when Captain Jim catches her in a mistake. Miss Cornelia shares that she can't board Owen Ford because she will be away in August 
as she has been appointed a delegate to the WFMS convention in Kingsport. So go, Miss Cornelia. Civic duty. I don't know what WFMS is, but it's clear that Miss Cornelia is very active in her community. So again, showing her goodness through her actions. I think that the WFMS might be the Women's Foreign Missionary Society, which seems like that would be relatively on point for Maud, given the prevalence for foreign missionaries and wives of foreign missionaries in her books. Yeah, that sounds right. Though this visit with Anne again has Miss Cornelia talking badly about the various men in town, we can now add, quote, getting up early to go fishing but not to work, (laughs) and Dr. Dave being a bit jealous that Gilbert is getting such a wonderful reputation as a doctor in town to Miss Cornelia's list of things that are just like a man. But Miss Cornelia generously shares with Anne that she's noticed that Leslie is so much happier and friendlier now, that she sees her laughing all the time, and that she is so glad that Leslie and Anne have each other as friends. Now, Miss Cornelia is away for much of the summer while Owen Ford is in Four Winds, but of course his presence ignites a crisis of conscience for Anne. And that's an important moment for Anne and her growth around the concept of goodness. Anne is the recipient of both Owen's and Leslie's confessions of love for each other, and she's deeply torn about the situation. She wishes Leslie were free to love Owen and that Owen could pursue Leslie, He's intelligent and caring and deeply poetic and thoughtful, and Anne can just imagine the beautiful life that Leslie would have if only her situation were different. But Anne is also deeply moral, and so even entertaining the what-if of it all feels sacrilegious somehow. She's sympathetic to both of these friends, while also holding firm on shutting down any speculations that would lead her friends further down this path. This is so stressful for Anne. She can't confide in anyone, not even Gilbert, because this feels like betrayal and because even wishing Leslie were free to love Owen is disrespectful to marriage vows. When Leslie confesses that she is so ashamed of caring for Owen, she thinks she must be wicked or a fool. Anne knows that there is no shame in the feelings and that Leslie is neither wicked nor a fool. After all, she never acted upon those feelings. Anne is only sorry that this will bring Leslie more sadness and highlight how trapped Leslie is, seemingly into perpetuity. And really, what is ethical and moral here? Both Anne and Leslie and their community would view marriage vows as vows before God. And to break that vow is not just to betray your spouse, but to betray God. On the other hand, why should Leslie have to stay so trapped and unhappy? She does not deserve this prison either. Not only that, those marriage vows were extorted from Leslie. Dick used the mortgage on the house to threaten Leslie into marriage. It's not as though she went willingly. Are vows given under this kind of duress truly freely given? I don't know. This is very nebulous and gray here, and that's why it's such a strain on Anne. Once again, we have those two counterpoints of goodness represented. That sort of high-level ethical absolutism right? Marriage vows are marriage vows. And then that human level that understands that there is nothing good about a loveless marriage. And not just a loveless marriage, most likely an abusive marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Miss Cornelia doesn't know about either confession of love, and neither does Gilbert. Anne will not tell. But both of them see in the relationship between Leslie and Owen this summer the other life that Leslie could have had, and they feel the contrast to her present circumstances even more keenly. In November, when Anne tells Miss Cornelia that she had a recent letter from Owen, Miss Cornelia doesn't want to hear about him, saying, quote, I'll never forgive him for what he's done to Leslie. 
there's that poor child eating her heart out about him as if she hadn't had trouble enough and him ranting round Toronto, I've no doubt, enjoying himself same as ever, just like a man. <laughs> Anne wonders how Miss Cornelia knew. And Miss Cornelia says, I've got eyes, haven't I? And I've known Leslie since she was a baby. There's been a new kind of heartbreak in her eyes all the fall. And I know that writer man was behind it somehow. Miss Cornelia blames herself for arranging Owen to board in the first place. She never imagined that this would happen. Usually Leslie freezes out any man stupid enough to try to flirt with her. Oh, a plague on all the men, she says. One of them ruined Leslie's life to begin with, and now another of the tribe comes and makes her still more wretched. When, in the spring, Gilbert tells Anne that he suspects that there is an operation that could make a difference for Dick Moore and could possibly restore him some of his memories and his faculties, Anne has a very strong reaction to this, and so does Miss Cornelia. Perhaps that's in part because Anne knows how Leslie suffered when Owen left. She knows the depths of what Leslie is enduring. Mm. She can't bear for her friend to have to shoulder this burden of making this decision and shoulder the possible outcome of Dick Moore returning to his abusive self. Gilbert is clear on the medical ethics of the situation. It's his responsibility to give this information to Leslie. It would be wrong of him to withhold it. He says... I believe that a doctor is bound to set the sanctity of a patient's mind and body above all other considerations, no matter what the consequences may be. Now, Gilbert isn't promising that it will work, and he's not telling Leslie what to do, but both he and Anne know that telling Leslie about this is to force her to make a terrible choice. Either Leslie keeps things the status quo, in which her life is hard but bearable, Dick Moore won't have any other option but to live out his life as a forever child, but she will always know that she didn't do everything possible to restore him. Or she risks the surgery, which I imagine has the potential to kill him, to make things worse. It costs a lot of money. And while it could give Dick back his memories and his adult mind, it also could mean that she will have to live with an abusive husband again. Mm. Anne counters that Dick isn't Gilbert's patient in regards to his mental functioning. Gilbert was just supposed to be treating the boils on the back of his neck. She says if Leslie had asked Gilbert's medical opinion about it, well, that would be different. Gilbert says, I've been driven to the conclusion that it is my duty to tell Leslie that I believe it is possible that Dick can be restored to himself. There my responsibility ends. It will be for her to decide what she will do. <sighs> Anne doesn't want Leslie to have to make this choice. It's a dreadful burden. And she definitely does not want Dick Moore to be returned to the abusive man that he was. Not telling Leslie removes the burden of choosing, but it doesn't change her circumstances at all. It's maybe a little paternalistic on Anne's part. And while that's coming from a place of love and protection, it's not treating Leslie as if she's capable of handling this information. Miss Cornelia feels the same way as Anne. And I think they both react so strongly because they know that Leslie will probably choose the operation. Leslie is a good person, despite a lifetime of tragedy and bitterness. Anne says, quote, You know very well how she will decide it, said Anne almost in tears. She has ideals of duty, too. Anne and Miss Cornelia can't bear to see Leslie suffer again because of the right thing to do. Gilbert consults with Dr. Dave, who is suspicious of surgery in general, and he looks at the case from concern for Leslie and doesn't want her life to be worse. But Captain Jim agrees with Gilbert. Both of them are deeply sorry to place this burden on Leslie, but they know that ethically it's the right choice. And they are correct in a way. But Anne and Miss Cornelia know that it is easier to be ethical on paper when society doesn't make you carry the cost of that choice. 
Now, it's interesting here that Maud has framed Gilbert and Captain Jim as being logical and thus more ethical. Captain Jim says, you women are lovely critters, Mistress Blythe, but you're just a mite illogical. Mm-hmm. You're a highly educated lady and Miss Cornelia isn't, but you're like as two peas when it comes to that. I don't know if you're any worse for it. Logic is sort of a hard, merciless thing, I reckon. Ugh. So here's the question for you then. Is ethics really about logic? Who decides what's logical? Who decides what's good? I mean, look, that's a question that philosophers have debated for centuries. We certainly are not going to have an answer here. (laughs) But I think that ethics kind of tries to come up with abstract rules that should guide our decision making to goodness, that should apply to every decision all the time. Yeah. Whereas Miss Cornelia and Anne are thinking of the real world consequences of applying ethical decisions. And that's also goodness. Yeah, we really are over here trying to answer the big questions, you guys. And, you know, this is really such an interesting question and directly relevant to my professional work. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the podcast, but I'm a legal ethics specialist. And so a lot of what I do is, you know, I parse some of these thorny issues. There's all kinds of injustice and harm and collateral consequences that can happen in this world you know, and that arise from behavior that is all perfectly ethical on paper, perfectly legal, as long as it's in the bounds of the rules that we all agree to follow. The goal of ethics isn't always harm reduction in the immediate sense. A lot of times we're looking toward sort of broader standards of behavior that we're hoping will protect the community as a whole, even if the effects on the individual can be harmful. And I think that I'd substitute Captain Jim's word logical for the word lawful. I don't love that quote from Captain Jim, even though I do love him as a character otherwise. To the medical ethics question that Gilbert raises, there are rules, there are laws that doctors must be forthcoming with their patients about treatment options, even when that information can cause pain or further harm. As a community, we decided that individuals must have the ability to to determine what course of treatment is best for them. And to do that, they need all the information available, right? So Gilbert's decision is actually quite simple at the end of the day. Leslie must be told so she can make an informed choice. The consequences to Leslie's finances, her health, her desires, her life, those are regrettable, but they're not even part of the equation. And that's what I mean when I say that there are all kinds of injustice and harm that can be done, even when what you're doing is perfectly ethical. Miss Cornelia definitely agrees about that. She rails, it's inhumane cruelty. That's what it is. I did think Dr. Blythe was a decent man. I didn't think he could have been guilty of this. Now, Anne loyally defends Gilbert and shares his reasoning, even repeating his line about a doctor putting the welfare of a patient's mind and body before all other considerations. And you already know what Miss Cornelia says. That's just like a man. Miss Cornelia's further argument, when Anne points out that Dick should be considered a little in this decision, too, not just Leslie, is, quote, Dick Moore, he's happy enough. He's a better behaved and more reputable member of society now than he ever was before. He was (laughs) drunkard and perhaps worse. Are you going to set him loose again to roar and to devour? Yeah. Miss Cornelia even feels that Dick kind of deserves his fate. She assumes that he got the injuries in a drunken brawl and that God sent those injuries to punish him. So that's another interesting ethical twist, right? Which is more important, free will or the possibility that a restored dick will potentially cause harm to others? There's no one single answer here. Leslie does come down on the side of free will. 
She tells Anne later that she realized when she was looking at Dick as being a helpless child that otherwise he would never get an opportunity to grow up. She had to see if the operation would help him grow and help him reclaim his free will. Right. Naturally, Miss Cornelia does not keep her opinions between herself and Anne, and she tells Gilbert every chance she sees him that she considers him little better than a murderer. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I think that's going a bit far. Even worse, she tells him that she'll go to the Methodist doctor over the harbor before she goes to Gilbert again as a doctor. No worse insult. Seriously, Miss Cornelia. <laughs> Burn it down, Miss Cornelia. Burn it down. <laughs> Now, in this situation, it turns out that Gilbert was right, with the most unexpected result of clearing up a decade of misunderstanding and freeing Leslie from her needless prison. When Anne tells Miss Cornelia that Dick Moore has been dead 13 years and it's been George Moore all along, Miss Cornelia can only say, it's, it's, it's just like a man. I can't even say that without laughing. <laughs> Speaking in the third person, she says, Cornelia Bryant was never so kerflummoxed before. <laughs> oh, man. And as they discuss all the details, Cornelia goes on to say, oh, drat the men. No matter what they do, it's the wrong thing. And no matter who they are, it's somebody they shouldn't be. They do exasperate me. <laughs> I do feel like this is kind of an atypical situation. <laughs> No matter who they are, there's somebody they shouldn't be. It's so funny. <laughs> oh, when Anne points out that Gilbert and Captain Jim were responsible for this truth being discovered at last, Miss Cornelia reluctantly admits that this is true. And she goes on to say that she actually feels ashamed for having raked Gilbert over the coals so thoroughly. Not so ashamed that she's going to tell him that, though. Oh, bridge too far. Bridge too far. <laughs> Later on, after baby Jem is born, Miss Cornelia shares a little story that seems to illuminate her personality a little bit. It seems she had been an only child until she was eight years old, and she was constantly asking her mother for a brother. Well, when a brother was finally born, they told her to go upstairs to see him, and when she did, she was so mad because she had been praying all that time for a brother who was two years older than her. She was so mad for weeks she wouldn't even look at the baby. But then, another girl at school said she thought the baby was awfully small for his age, and Cornelia came flying out in his defense and said that he was the nicest baby in the world. And of course, after that, she loved him, and they were very close. But he died when he was 20. And I think that tells us a lot about Miss Cornelia. She's oppositional when things aren't exactly as she thinks they should be, but she's loyal to her core and she defends others against injustice. And once she's done that, she will have your back forever. Yep. Miss Cornelia also fields the request from Owen Ford to board at her house in the summer again, and she shares this only with Anne because they don't know what Leslie's reaction will be and they're afraid that she'll leave to avoid him. They both know this is tiptoeing up to the line of meddling, and Anne's mind is a little uneasy about it. But Miss Cornelia feels fine about it. She's always had Leslie's happiness in mind, and she's not above making arrangements that she thinks will be for the better. And, as we know, this also works out. Well, the last major moment for Miss Cornelia in this book is a big shocker. Miss Cornelia, she who has never had anything good to say about any man, announces out of nowhere that she is going to be married. <laughs> Naturally, Anne and Gilbert are stunned into silence. Gilbert finally says, I've heard you say a score of times that you wouldn't marry the best man in the world. And Miss Cornelia retorts, I'm not going to marry the best man in the world. Marshall Elliott is a long way from being the best. 
She goes on to say she could have had him any time in the last 20 years, but would never even consider it while he looked like a perambulating haystack. <laughs> Marshall Elliott, if you recall, was the man with the immense beard and long hair because he had vowed not to shave until the liberals were back in power again. I actually think that that puts Miss Cornelia squarely in her 40s if she could have married him any time in the last 20 years. Yeah, I think that checks out. Miss Cornelia implies that she may as well get married because she's sick and tired of hired men because they always do things wrong or make stupid choices. <laughs> Gilbert teases Miss Cornelia a bit once he's grasped the whole situation. I fear your day of independence is done. As you know, Marshall Elliott is a very determined man. Miss Cornelia has an answer. Of course she does. She's thought about this. She says, I like a man who can stick to a thing. Amos Grant, who used to be after me long ago, couldn't. You never saw such a weather vane. He jumped into the pond to drown himself once and then changed his mind and swum out again. Wasn't that like a man? Marshall would have stuck to it and drowned. That's a future yeah. husband she's talking about. Okay. I mean, sure. <laughs> Miss Cornelia is resigned to the fact that Marshall is a liberal, not conservative like herself, but at least he's not a Methodist. As she says, politics is for this world, but religion is for both. And here's our last quote from Miss Cornelia for the book, when Gilbert teasingly offers her his grandmother's rules on managing husbands. He says, the first one is catch him. He's caught. Go on. The second one is feed him well with enough pie. What next? The third and fourth are, keep your eye on him. I believe you, said Miss Cornelia emphatically. <laughs> oh my gosh. Miss <laughs> Cornelia, she's such a wild ride. I know. Kelly, what do you think about this abrupt about face on Miss Cornelia's part? Was it truly about Marshall Elliott shaving? I kind of wonder if Leslie's situation all of a sudden kind of illuminated for Miss Cornelia a more flexible mindset? Or has she and Marshall Elliott been flirting all along? Does Miss Cornelia have a secret life? Okay. I've been thinking about this quite a bit since I finished rereading the book. And I actually really like your theory about Cornelia being inspired by Leslie and Owen's situation, right? Like sort of a nothing is guaranteed in this world. Let's just kind of take our happiness where we find it. And it kind of a, it's never too late. Right. right? It's never too late. It's never too late to find happiness. Yeah. But this engagement really seems to fly in the face of everything we know. So I almost do think that Cornelia and Marshall Elliott were secretly courting for the last 20 years. <laughs> Or if not, maybe outright courting. I think they were like flirting. I think I really do. I think they had a thing. I bet you anything that what happened is 14 years ago or whenever the liberals were last in power, the two of them got into an argument about politics and neither would back down. Because of course, you know that Maud loves a love story where pride stands in the way. And once Marshall finally shaved, she could put it all behind her. And she was like, all right, we can get married after all. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably... Somewhere close to what happened, right? As you think about, he was always up at the lighthouse. He's kind of like always hanging out peripherally around the edges. So like, right? you know, he was kind of there. Right, right, <laughs> right. Exactly. So who knows? We never get to go to Miss Cornelia's house. We don't know what's happening over there. Oh, in that bright green house. We don't know if he's like sneaking by, like walks her home from Captain Jim's house. You know, what happens? Does he linger on her porch for a kiss? And then she says, not until you shave. I, I think maybe there's something going on there. Right? Well, that's our character study on Miss Cornelia. She's sharp, but caring. She's judgmental in the extreme, but will give you the clothes off her back if you have the need. She's opinionated and sure she's right, 
but she's also loyal to the core. She's a gossip. She talks about everyone, but she can keep confidences when she needs to, and she shows up in hard times and tragedy. She has her own brand of ethics that she lives by. She's a contradiction of goodness. She's certainly not the angelic, meek, agreeable, self-sacrificing archetype of goodness that Anne probably imagined in her Sunday school days. But in the end, Miss Cornelia walks the walk of her beliefs and embraces the messy contradiction of trying to live a moral life unapologetically. I love that. Beautifully said, Reagan. And I love Miss Cornelia. So we were really curious about Miss Cornelia's prejudice against Methodists in Anne's House of Dreams. So for our Birch Path segment, I'm going to discuss the differences in the faiths in the late 19th century. I gotta say, from where we sit in the 21st century, the theological differences between Methodists and Presbyterians seem pretty blurry. They are both denominations of Christian Protestantism. They both believe in Jesus Christ as the head of the church. They both believe in the teachings of the Bible. And neither believe in transubstantiation, which is when during the Catholic sacrament of communion, the blood and wine literally turn into Christ's body and blood. And can I just say that Protestants are missing out because that part of Catholicism is extremely metal. (laughs) Full disclosure, and I'm sure this is already clear from my irreverent tone, but neither Reagan nor I are particularly religious. We were both raised Catholic to some extent, as we both have Irish Catholic backgrounds. And I took the Catholic sacraments in my childhood, and I went to Sunday school, but that's really the extent of my religiosity. I'm not a religious scholar. I've only read the juicy parts of the Bible and the Andrew Lloyd Webber parts of the Bible. And I know very little about the Protestant denominations, except that they don't pray to saints, which honestly, you guys, to me, that seems like a missed opportunity to practice a little light polytheism. <laughs> There's nothing like losing your keys and saying a prayer to the saint of lost things. So understand that this birch path is coming from my research and not my lived experience. It will be oversimplified, but I hope to meet our goal of understanding why the divide between these two faiths is important in Anne's House of Dreams. To those listeners who may have a relationship with these faiths that is much more personal, please be merciful and please be sure to reach out to correct any major misstatements. Way back in episode four, Marilla and Motherhood, we had a Birch Path segment that briefly explained Scottish Presbyterianism and Calvinism generally. And to understand a character like Marilla, for whom faith is the ultimate cornerstone of her lived experience, that was a really important context. We discussed how Marilla's faith taught her to center spirituality and to reject worldliness and a connection to anything in the natural or physical world. We also talked about how Marilla would have been very concerned with saving Anne's soul because Anne was so clearly a creature of the natural world. To Marilla, Anne should have been worrying about living a moral life to secure her spot in heaven, not just enjoying her life on earth in the present. But one thing we didn't discuss then that's crucial to understanding the Presbyterian-Methodist divide during the time of Anne's House of Dreams is the Presbyterian doctrine of predetermination, also called predestination. This stems from the Calvinist idea that no one deserves to go to heaven because we are all sinners, right? We're born with original sin. But Presbyterians believe that God has chosen some people who will go to heaven, and those are the people for whom Jesus Christ died. And if you are not predestined by God, you cannot be saved, no matter what you do. And although I'm sure that the Miss Cornelias and the Marillas of the world found this idea very comforting, in fact, we know that Marilla did, because her go-to line whenever she encounters a challenge is that, oh, it's providence or it's providential. You know, those are other words for this idea of being predetermined by God. 
But that idea could also be a disturbing thought, right? Like, what if you weren't one of God's predestined chosen people? And in fact, Ewan McDonald, who is Maud's Presbyterian minister husband, he suffered deeply from that very question, and it fueled his depression. So now I understand that in modern times, most mainstream Presbyterians don't go super hard into predestination. And even in Maud's time in the early 20th century, Presbyterian seminaries had stopped formally teaching the concept of predestination. But for those who grew up with the faith in the 19th century, they would have had some connection to that as a foundational belief. In contrast, Methodists rejected predestination in favor of free will, the idea that eternal life and heavenly salvation is available to all of us if we actively choose it through our words and deeds. Methodists believe that God gave everyone the tools they need to live a moral life following the teachings of Christ and then to be rewarded with eternal life in heaven. And so if you think about it, this is like a pretty major split in the beliefs. A hardline Presbyterian like Miss Cornelia would have believed that Methodists weren't going to heaven, even if they led good and moral lives. There's an illuminating line in a conversation in House of Dreams. Quote, do you know, Cornelia, said Captain Jim gravely, I've often thought that if I wasn't a Presbyterian, I'd be a Methodist. Oh, well, conceded Miss Cornelia. If you weren't a Presbyterian, it wouldn't matter much what you were. <laughs> so you know what, Kelly, this was so interesting you saying this because I always wondered about that line because to me, Presbyterian and Methodist are both just ways of saying Christian. Christian, right. Non-denominational, not Catholic, you know. But no, that I think really gets to that exact sentiment that only Presbyterians have any hope of salvation. So it doesn't really matter what you believe if you aren't one, right? That's what Miss Cornelia would have believed. Mm-hmm. So, and you might not know the, an the answer to this question. Would that mean you couldn't have converted to Presbyterianism if you weren't born into it? I really don't know, Reagan. And I was thinking about this a lot with the fact that like Anne is an orphan, right? We don't know what faith Walter and Bertha Shirley were. I don't think that's anywhere in the text. So for Marilla to be taking Anne in, raising her as Presbyterian, like, is this just on blind faith that Anne is one of God's chosen? Like, I, tr I truly don't know. And I just think there's some interesting context here that's a little bit lost, maybe not lost to time, but certainly just not available, you know, to be readily researched in yeah. you know, 2024. Again, if there are Presbyterians out there listening, I would love to hear your perspective and to know a little bit more about this. So the way I was kind of conceiving of the difference in these two faiths is like the difference between those kinds of teachers. You know, you have those teachers who will say everyone starts the semester with an A and you can only lose points versus those teachers who are going to base your grades on the points that you accumulate over the course of the year. Okay. So, like in this oversimplified example, the way I see it is that the Presbyterians are the group where the teacher says everybody already has the A, right? You have the ticket to heaven. God's decided this, but you can't lose any goodness points during your life or else they're going to lose the A. Meanwhile, okay. Methodists are starting with a clean slate and they need to continually do good works throughout their lives to earn their way to heaven. Interesting. I, I mean, again, I think probably super oversimplified, but that seems to be kind of a fundamental difference there. Um, but there were other differences that would have influenced Miss Cornelia's beliefs and her suspicions of Methodists. Methodism was a comparatively newer faith that grew and expanded very quickly in the 18th and 19th centuries in Canada and the United States. Whereas Presbyterianism would have been seen as a much more established faith because it had its roots in the Calvinist revolution of the 1500s, right? So it's like many hundreds of years older. 
Methodists were also a little less intense in their beliefs around original sin, right? Both Presbyterians and Methodists believed in original sin, which is the idea that people are born inherently sinful and they are destined to die without salvation unless they experience divine intervention, like unless they live their lives in a godly way. But in addition to that, Presbyterians also believe in something called total depravity, which is the idea that humans are so sinful, so inherently sinful, that they actually cannot live a moral life without God giving them the desire to turn away from sin. So to the Miss Cornelius of the world, there is simply no hope for you if you aren't a Presbyterian. You won't even want to overcome your inherent sinfulness because God hasn't given you that desire. Maude pokes some gentle fun at Miss Cornelia's Presbyterian extremism and then gives a hint to Gilbert and Anne's more relaxed interpretation of the faith in a scene where Miss Cornelia discusses a book she's recently borrowed from Gilbert. Turns out she borrowed Henry Drummond's 1877 book, Natural Law in the Spiritual World, which was a real book that certainly made waves in its time. Drummond was a missionary and a naturalist, and much like Anne, he found God and spirituality in the natural world. He argued that the disconnect between the spiritual and the physical was entirely illusory, right? It didn't exist. There's no lack of connection between those two things. And he argued that faith was by no means in conflict with science. In a time when Darwinism was challenging many long-standing Christian beliefs, Drummond's book attempted to reconcile the 19th century scientific discoveries with the mainstream spiritual beliefs of the time, right? So he's basically saying things like, you can believe in the scientific evidence supporting evolution and also believe that God created the earth. Like these two ideas are not in conflict with each other. So the fact that Anne and Gilbert own this book, I mean, that's certainly a nod to their beliefs. And the fact that Anne finds God in nature, and we know that Gilbert, of course, believes in the power of scientific advances, but we also know that they're both still deeply religious, deeply moral people, right? So it seems like they're sort of along the like Drummond line of beliefs. Miss Cornelia, on the other hand, does not seem to take to Drummond's book. <laughs> As she says to Gilbert, quote, speaking of heresy... Mine's speaking of heresy, <laughs> as as you are. <laughs> speaking of heresy, reminds me, Doctor, I've brought back that book you lent me, that natural law in the spiritual world. I didn't read more than a third of it. I can read sense and I can read nonsense, but that book is neither the one nor the other. It is considered rather heretical in some quarters, admitted Gilbert, but I told you that before you took it, Miss Cornelia. Oh, I wouldn't have minded its being heretical. I can stand wickedness, but I can't stand foolishness, said Miss Cornelia calmly, and with the air of having said the last thing there was to say about natural law. <laughs> so Maud is having a little fun at Miss Cornelia Cornelia's expense here. We know Maud also values nature and science like Anne and Gilbert, and she certainly would have read Drummond and taken him a lot more seriously than Miss Cornelia, who treats any perceived attack on her faith as foolishness. The fact that Miss Cornelia won't read more than a third of the way through this influential book demonstrates that her impenetrable, unshakable faith has limited her ability to engage with more modern ideas about religion and spirituality. And while the evidence of Miss Cornelia's goodness and morality may be clear to us readers, to Maud, there's more to living a good life than perfect, unquestioning devotion to religious doctrine. That was so interesting, Kelly. I had no idea. Yeah, a lot of it was very new for me, too. And so, again, to the extent that I got anything wrong, please let me know. But yeah, very interesting and definitely gives a more context and background to Miss Cornelia's kind of seemingly out of nowhere prejudice. Yes, absolutely. So, Reagan, what do you think? Is there anything we haven't said about Miss Cornelia Bryan at this point? Do you have a puff sleeve moment to share? 
Well, we certainly have covered a lot of Miss Cornelia moments in this episode, but there is one little touch I love that we haven't mentioned, which is that the usually assured Miss Cornelia, who wears what she likes, wonders if it would be okay to wear a veil with her navy blue silk wedding dress. She says, Marshall says she should wear it if she wants to, and isn't that like a man? And Anne agrees with Marshall here. But all of a sudden, Miss Cornelia doesn't want to be different from other people. Although Anne thinks Miss Cornelia was not noticeably like anyone else on the face of the earth. Anne admits that veils traditionally do go only with white dresses. So Miss Cornelia says she won't have one. If it isn't the proper thing, I won't wear it. All of a sudden, Miss Cornelia is worried what other people might think of her. It's just a funny juxtaposition. <laughs> well, you know, I do think weddings make us all a little self-conscious, but, you know, why should Miss Cornelia care? Wear the veil, girl. Exactly. Wear what you like. Seriously. I love that Miss Cornelia reads obituaries for fun, and she fact-checks them. In one scene, she's reading out the obituaries to Anne, and she can't help but point out that even though the paper printed that a deceased person was surrounded by a large circle of friends mourning his untimely loss, he was 80 years old and not much missed by his people. So, as usual, she's right there to point out the hypocrisy in the community. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I really get this sense that Maud herself likely noticed these same kinds of things and wanted a way to point it out. Right. Miss Cornelia can say the things that maybe most people would not have been able to say. Yep, exactly. Well, let's take a moment to talk about anything that might have be inspired by Miss Cornelia. So, all of this discussion of goodness, ethics, and morals reminds me of one of my very favorite TV shows, The Good Place. Ah, oh, love it. If you have not watched it, please, you really, really should. I just love the way they talk about goodness, about morality, about wrestling with the contradictions in living an ethical life. They tackle the idea of how to be good in a way that is very funny, never preachy, and truly touching. If you've never seen it, I'm not going to give away any of the twists and turns it takes, but the essential premise is that Kristen Bell plays the character Eleanor, who wakes up in the good place and is greeted by Michael, played by the phenomenal Ted Danson. And Michael tells her that she has died and she's in the afterlife, the good place, a neighborhood tailored to each resident and filled with only the best, most altruistic people, and where they can have anything and do anything they like, they even will meet their soulmate. The only problem that Eleanor figures out immediately is that there seems to have been some mistake. She didn't do all of the incredible altruistic deeds that they seem to think that she did. She was kind of a low-grade dirtbag, as she calls herself. <laughs> Selfish, short-sighted, focused on her own best interest. So then what? The show is so clever, hysterical, and really made me think deeply about what it means to be a good person. And in fact, now that I kind of think about it, the character of Eleanor has a little bit of Miss Cornelia in her. Oh, she, yeah, I see that. Right? She says what yeah. she thinks. She doesn't worry much about being tactful. Sometimes she's kind of mean and she calls it like she sees it. But, but she doesn't at, punch down. But she, she doesn't she punch down. down. And at her core, she's deeply loyal to the people that she cares about. And she is deeply caring. Yeah. I think that if there's a shrimp vending machine, that Miss Cornelia would be all over it. Exactly. I'm sure she and Eleanor would have a lot to talk about. Eleanor would <laughs> love talking to Miss Cornelia. She really would. She really would. 
So listeners, if you have never watched The Good Place before, go do it. And if you have watched it, maybe it's time for a rewatch. Uh, amazing suggestion, Reagan. It's really rare that I rewatch sitcoms, but I have rewatched The Good Place a couple of times. Yeah. So thoughtful. And also, my husband and I love to sing Chidi's song about putting the peeps in the chili pot. Yes. Every time you make chili, you have to sing, you put the peeps in the chili pot and stir it stir all. all around. <laughs> I can't even see a peep without thinking about it. So I hope as you all are starting to see Easter candy on the shelves that you are humming it to yourself. <laughs> all right. So for my inspired by, I'm going to be very meta and I'm going to recommend our own podcast. What? <laughs> yeah, specifically, I think you all should check out if you haven't or re-listen even if you have episode nine, our episode about Miss Josephine Berry. I think that episode's a really nice companion to this one because we discuss the unique position of an unmarried woman with her own means. Like Miss Cornelia, Miss Josephine is a self-sufficient woman with decided opinions. And also like Miss Cornelia, Miss Josephine shows up for her community in surprising ways. I think both episodes ask listeners to think about how you can use your time to support your community and how we are all in this together, even if you aren't married or don't have kids. Wow. Well, I love that recommendation. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Kindred Spirits. Please listen up next episode as we talk in depth about Leslie Moore. As I'm sure you can guess, our theme for Leslie will be beauty. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share our podcast on your social media feeds. That's really the best way for new Kindred Spirits to find us and to share the love for all things Anne. If you do review or share the podcast, send us an email at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com or DM us on our Instagram, also kindredspirits.bookclub, and we will send you a beautiful Kindred Spirits Club sticker, perfect for your water bottle or e-reader. Follow us on Instagram, too, for peeks into upcoming episodes and for other fun little bookish posts. As always, thank you for listening, Kindred Spirits. Bye, Kindred Spirits. <laughs>